Welcome to The 12th Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 180 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts authors and speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We are a working library with more than 75,000 books available to members. We're located at 414 Walnut, Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and online at www.mercantilelibrary.com. And we always welcome new members and guests. Joining us today in the reading room on the 12th story of the Mercantile Building are Pete Metz, a new guest on the podcast and the chief of staff for Vice Mayor David Mann. Hey, good to be here. And Luke Blocher, deputy city solicitor for the city of Cincinnati. Hello, at Brendano. <laughs> and I'm Brendan Cole with Kroger, also a board member of the library. Uh, today we'll be discussing Once in a Great City by David Moranis. Did I say it right? Moranis. Oh, God, I practiced. By David We'll be discussing Once in a Great City by David Marinus. Uh, a warning, there will be spoilers discussed today, so proceed at your own caution. So Once in a Great City uh, by David Marinus is a um, book about Detroit. The subtitle is A Detroit Story. Uh, and in short, it is about Detroit uh, in a period of time, basically from the near the end of 1962 to about 1964. Uh, and um, the author, I'm just going to call him the author so I don't keep butchering his name, um, <laughs> grew up or was born in Detroit. So. And, um, for a very short time. For a very short time, to, but, but was inspired to write about this book, which I thought was a little corny, but he was inspired to write this book after seeing the Eminem Detroit commercial that ran, I think, on the Super Bowl or on some big sporting activity. It was the Super Bowl. This Super might Bowl. be the most substantive thing Eminem has ever inspired. That's <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. So uh, anyway, so he wrote this book. Uh, you know, the author has written biographies of, of Bill Clinton, which Luke, you referred to me, and it was is still one of the best biographies it's I've fantastic. ever read. It's a terrific read called uh, First in His Class. First in His Class, yes. Um, so it's a it's a great book, and it fits into. I think this is where maybe we can start. Is it fits into a little bit of a Detroit zeitgeist or moment that's happening right now, um, where if you go uh, to your local bookstore, or your local library, you're going to find books about Detroit in a um, kind of an unusually <laughs> high density. Um, th I saw literally while we were getting ready for this this week, I was on Facebook and someone posted a like clickbait type article uh, from like one of these click websites that was the 10 best books about Detroit that mm -hmm. have come out in the last year. Mm -hmm. um, there have been books about ruin porn that are like coffee table books that show buildings that are, you know, have trees growing out of them. You've got uh, a number of books about Detroit, and we can talk about some of them, fiction, nonfiction. Um, but this is the latest, and this is by a, a terrific author. W I'm, a, I, I'm interested in why you, why we think this is interesting why are people reading about Detroit why are they so interested in Detroit right now well I, I have a couple of thoughts about that one is that it's it's the positive version of it is that it's a this is sort of a moment for cities right now that there's sort of a sense of cities are coming back and people moving back into cities and cities and sort of what they represent are again at the center of the culture and and there was like no more spectacular failure of the city than Detroit. Um, 
And so it's sort of an optimistic thing. And hey, even Detroit, like almost like even Detroit can come back. Well, maybe. but to, to that point, if we're gonna think about cities as success stories again, there was also no greater success than Detroit in the 60s. Right. And so there's some real value in, in reading about Detroit in its heyday. You know, obviously the, the, the follow-up to this is Detroit what as falls, right but if we wanna learn how cities are successful yeah. or were successful, here's a good perfect What example. were they like when we looked back on a city that was like, you know, I mean, that's, that's when we really thought about Detroit yeah. as being great. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think w well, the other, the, my second point would be that, or second thought is that I think Detroit is almost unlike, I mean, it's not like any East Coast city. It's not like S San Francisco or even LA in that it's like, it's, it was so inextricably tied to post-World War II um, American economic expansion built around industrialization. Like, like it, Detroit doesn't expand the way it does without the ex expansion of the auto industry uh, into global domination, which was such a part of, which was a sort of happened in part because of World War II and sort of the automation that happened during World War II for us in the war effort. And then afterwards, we're the only advanced economy left in the world, and we just take over the world economically. And like, it was Detroit. Was, and it, it was like this guns blazing, no pun intended, like expansion without any almost without any thought, like, let's just expand. And I think one of the... It got too big. Well, and it, yeah, and, and it expanded in some way that was fundamentally unsustainable. Right. You know, it was just not, but it wasn't, it was happening so fast, it was growing so big, there was no time to think about planning or what it should look like. Just like, let's just keep going. And that was, that's, it's perfectly emblematic of that moment in time in U.S. history. Because when, when you know, when we started to lose because other economies in the world started to grow and we were no longer the only global economy, then, then uh, uh, we had to like continue to evolve and they never really did and it, like that, but they capture a moment from the 40s to the 60s when we were just gangbusters as a country. I think it's, it could be too, I think par part of it is that we believed we were gangbusters. So even though some of the signs may have been starting to show that things weren't gonna go as gangbusters as they actually were, we believed we were at our, our peak. Right. And so the timing of this book is interesting. I mean, it is 62 and 63 and 64, which is, you know, it's Camelot. I mean, I don't think that ever gets uttered in the book, but that it's, that's the time it's that the we were thinking about. Um, it, it is, it is the undertone and, and then Everyone knows what happens right afterwards. Um, but there's an interesting part in the book, then we, we can kind of jump right into it. And, um, Pete, I know you, you talked about this a little bit, but there's early on in the book, he does a little bit of an aside, and he's talking about the chrono chrono chronology of, of Detroit. And he talks about this report that the, these folks at Wayne, Wayne State, which is a university up there, wrote. Um, and they wrote it back in 1963, and it was all about kind of the economic attitude, I economic attributes of Detroit at the time. Um, and it's, uh, it, predicted a it says it predicted a dire future long before it became popular to attribute Detroit's fall to a grab bag of Rust Belt infirmities from high costs to harsh, high labor costs to harsh weather, and before the city staggered from more blows of corruption and incompetence. Um, his argument, and he's using this report, is that the urban decline existed in 1962, but no one had seen it yet, or no one was really believing that. Well, they even said in the book it didn't make the front couple pages of the newspaper. It was released and disregarded in many ways in its era, um, if I remember correctly, that mm -hmm. this report was there, and though the people who saw Detroit as moving like gangbusters didn't have time to stop and read this report. 
because they were expanding so quickly. I mean, that's how I interpreted it. Yeah, no, it's exact. I think that's exactly right. And um, I, I mean, I think that paragraph and that that couple of pages about that re report are mm -hmm. so crucial to this book and crucial understanding Detroit because I think the 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 novice who comes to this or the person who doesn't know much about it is thinking about cities, even to an extent thinking about Cincinnati. Uh, you know, they think about the riots in 67 and 68, and they say that's what dis destroyed the city. But my guess is if somebody had done a report like this in 1962 in Cincinnati, Ohio, it probably would have shown some of the same kind of ominous clouds on the, mm -hmm. on the horizon. One of my, and, and I went back and forth on the book, but one of my disappointments is that this report was not focused on more, that there were so many actors that the author focused on from Motown to the auto industry to the labor movement, but we didn't get a sense of who are the people who wrote this report what was it that drove them to release mm. this report? And there, the, 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 the view was so wide that it, it could have easily been a chapter or two, or they could have been characters in this story. Um, but yeah. for whatever reason, they didn't exist, and I wanted more on this, and I, it just wasn't there. Yeah, it's he, interesting the way he, I mean, just really quickly, that he, he, he introduces it there, and then at the very end of the book, he's like, remember that report? It turns out it was yeah. all correct. Yes, <laughs> and that's yeah. That's it. And it's like, it's almost like, I mean, us looking back on history, reading this, look at it and go, oh man, there, were, there it was, there was the red flag. And, but you're right, he never engages that except to say, except sort of, sort of like a wink at the end to say, yeah, we know that you know well, and I guess what the, really happened. The question is, I look at the title of the book again, it's Once in a Great City. Is the book supposed to be about, hey, look, we all saw it coming, we should have seen it coming, look at this report, or is it, this was a great city, these are amazing people doing amazing things in this city when it was phenomenal. So I don't, I don't know what, which theme he was really actually going for, but I, I hadn't at all reflected on the title of the book until just looking at it again now that maybe that wasn't his intent. Well, I think to that point, and I was influenced a little bit, Pete and I talked about the book a little bit before I was actually finished, and so I read the last 80 pages or so you know, with his voice in my head a little bit. And it was a question. Very influenced clearly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a terrifying thought, my voice. It was head. this question of, you know, what uh, view that, you know, this was all over the place and it was talking about a lot of different people, but it didn't, it, 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 it didn't really focus in on something enough. And I did finish at the end and I was like, I don't really know what the point of this book was. It was, and it was really well written and it was really enjoyable. And there was this really neat history. And I think looking, you know, having, like a 360 lens for this one and a half, two year period was really interesting. But it was also like, I don't know what, I don't know what the point he was driving home was. Like in first in his class, for example, like when I read that at the Bill Clinton biography, like I got the point, he was making a point and it was driven home throughout the whole book. And I don't know that there was a point. And then some of it is like his, that this is like his own personal thing that he, you know, that he, that he prefaces it with, that he wrote it because he had this personal reaction to this M&M commercial, so then he went on this personal journey to, like, unearth the history of Detroit. We should actually be clear, the commercial was Chrysler. 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 Oh, so it's Chrysler all M&M M &M in a Chrysler commercial. Right. So it was all it goes back to the auto industry. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. So yeah, I, I never... It was a good commercial. It was a great commercial. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I had a, like, it was a great commercial, absolutely. <laughs> um, I got emotional with that commercial. I have no I relation to Detroit, and I was still, yeah, <laughs> you know, moved to... But the, um, I have a point, like I had a point at the end when I read it, I was like, okay, here's a point that I have, but I didn't feel like sort of like what I took away from it. Mm -hmm. But I didn't ever feel like he was driving a point, you know? Yeah, I mean, he, I think he picks a moment of time and he says, I'm going to tell you what Detroit was like at a particular moment in time um, before, before a city fell, I guess. Um, 
but but I guess I was you know kind of back to the original question. I mean, I'm a little I'm a little jealous that Detroit gets this kind of attention. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yes, they are the big example of a city that has gone just is ter- is in terrible condition and no one wants to be Detroit, right? right. You, I, if you're you guys work it for for the city, if somebody the said we're going to be Detroit, that's you know what that means. Right. And you know, by the way, Detroit has still like half a million people who live in it more than the city of Cincinnati. Right. Um, but but anyway, so I guess uh, there's a little bit of envy I have that Detroit gets is getting this kind of attention when there's there's cities all across the Rust Belt and all across America have s- suffered similar fates. Maybe they didn't fall from as far, um, but I think that part of that is that Detroit has an identity, has yeah. an identity, has an identity. It is this like back to my original or anyway, it is this it is this I think quintessential 20th century American city, or maybe the quintessential 20th century American city. And that, that has an, a, a resonant identity in the culture that, I mean, I think that's actually one of the challenges that we have as a city, and that's a, this is a topic of a different podcast, but is like creating a national identity that right. people can right. grab onto. And I think- Like you, how, what would you, I mean, you could write a book about Cincinnati, probably during. And the I would same read this years. same book about Cincinnati. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it would be I fascinating. Mean, I would love it to, pro- but it probably it. wouldn't have the. I mean, it it wouldn't sell. You would, the three of us would read it. I don't know that yeah, people I mean, he in, in, in St. Louis or in Chicago or in Milwaukee would read it. It would do very well, at Joseph Beth, and have high circulation at the Mercantile Library. Exactly. But probably beyond that. What I don't more know does that a book want? Be, right. <laughs> that's yes. right. That's right. Yes. No, but I think that's right. I think this. I think Detroit has a very, you know, and I think, and I think he does a good job of. This explains why Detroit has that identity. I mean, it, it's, it's made up of all these things. It is made up of cars, first and foremost, but also Motown. You know, but cars th- cars were connected to Motown. You talk about why they had access to money to right. buy pianos. That was because of the auto industry. It's because right. they had this excess income. Right. Yeah, so, even, so even when you think there's something different, it still drives right. back to cars. Yes, and, and in fact, what was missing, I thought, in this book, there was, it, that maybe I missed it, but there was no, I could find no discussion about the 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 fact that the car is what led to all of this interstate highway development mm-hmm. that ended up moving people farther out from the cities and giving them the ability to yeah. flee the city, which was going on in the late 50s and early 60s. Right. Mm-hmm. You're building these roads and they're moving out. And so he, I think he kind of missed an opportunity yeah. Yeah. to tie the fact that you know they're launching the Mustang and it's the, the place of the car industry with right. all of the population loss that was in large part due because of this new technology that people right. could just hit the road. I think that's the, to the broader point, though. Of there, this, there was a lack of analysis, right, in, this, in what was happening in this time. And I think right. that's, that's the analysis piece that I would have so much wanted to read in right. this that just didn't exist. Right. Which is interesting because at the end of the day, that's the point of writing history books, is, right. to, is to look back and then draw something out of that, right? Not just be a chronicle of what happened which is what he, in all his other books, he does. This is very much, you're right. This is very much, to me, a chronicle of what happened. And by the way, some really interesting interesting things. Yeah, absolutely. And things I didn't know about until now. I did not know uh, that you you wanted to talk about this, Pete. I did not know that Detroit was a finalist for the Olympics, uh, which would have been in 19... And in multiple years. I mean, they were like, they were the the city that showed up every year and said... Right. And so a big part of the book is them trying to get bid for the Olympics in 1970... 68. 68. It was 68, 68, which is crazy how early they were, or late they were bidding. Yes, because now it's... it's, You know, we were, yeah. Right. But the, so, t- I mean, talk about that a little bit. I know you liked that. Well, I, actually, it's funny. I, I, 
the one bit of analysis we, we got from that was how by missing out on the Olympics, he, he sort of hypothesized that perhaps Detroit would have been saved for a little bit longer had the Olympics come to Detroit. And I thought that was interesting. His theory was that the business leaders would have invested more in the city as opposed to you know, out in, in the surrounding areas and that there would have been more civic sort of engagement and pride in, in those coming years. And you know, in, in that time, I guess, the Olympics really did help propel cities forward, which was interesting to me because my whole experience of what does an Olympic do economically for a city right is now there are cities running away from going to get the Olympic Yeah, bit. sure. You, you know, Boston, Boston is like, get it out of here. We right. don't want it. Uh, and so I just, I thought that was really interesting. I, I found the whole narrative of that piece really interesting. The the, the displays they put together, the yeah. travel, the, the internal politics of The of boosterism. This, right, right, the, of, of the whole selection process. But then there was that little bit at the end where he seemed to indicate that had Detroit just gotten the Olympics, maybe things would have been somewhat different. And I highlighted it and I sort of said, was that true then? I just no, I don't know the answer to no, that. I can't buy. I don't buy that based. I mean, I, you're exactly right. Yeah. I don't buy. Let's say they did get the Olympics. It would have just staved off what right. was already happening. This was so right. systemic. That's right. right. It was people choosing to leave the city. I mean, I think that's what's missing. Being empowered people, to leave the city. Yeah, they had a car. They could find a bigger piece of land. They didn't like living in such close quarters. And then there's the 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 kind of. Uh, seedy underbelly of all of this is that many of them left for because they just didn't they didn't want to be around people of a different race yeah. I and mean, there is undercurrent to all of this was you know white flight from the city because they there was a you know an undercurrent mm -hmm. of racism that existed which was interesting because the story and, and to shift topics a little bit the story was so positive in many ways on on race issues in Detroit. i mean there were there were conversations about you know fair housing that showed clear negatives and clear sort of underpinnings of that, but there was so much positive to tell about Detroit's role in, in sort of the civil rights movement and, and race relations, but you're right, a, a big factor of those people leaving really was race. Yeah. And that was, I, th I found that part of this to be, um, I think, ultimately pretty depressing because there was this, you got to, you know, knowing what sort of transpired the next several years, you had this seeming real optimism about this that you know was was based on an ignorance of actual relations and actual you know like sort of like the idea that i mean it was amazing george edwards was an amazing character to me i think that was his name mm -hmm. the police commissioner i mean the idea that yeah the idea that he was a, I would read a whole state supreme court yes. justice who stepped off of the bench to go be the police commissioner a reformer yeah and he went to go become the police commissioner so he could work on like race relations and civil rights and that he'd come up out of this sort of old Texas liberal tradition mm -hmm. that you know doesn't even exist anymore, and then and then he went from being the police commissioner to a Sixth Circuit appellate judge. I mean, that's a career path that does not possibly exist. It doesn't exist right. in the world today. <laughs> and and that he and that he he could feel that. I mean, he seemed like a real substantive guy from what we could tell from this, right? And I, so so I don't think he he was. He it turns out he was fooling himself. That the changes he thought he were making weren't sort of seeping down into the police force, the community relations weren't happening the way I think he hoped they were. But I don't think he was willfully tricking himself. I think that's just the mindset, like people were, they didn't, there was not a real connection to the actual depths of the tension. And 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 to think that there was this time when him and Kavanaugh were like riding high, and Kavanaugh being the mayor at the time, who I can't know how young he was, he was only 35. Yeah, another one who was like, you know, had his career kind of ruined by what was 
what was what what ended up happening in yeah. Detroit, and and was thought of as c- kind of a f- the future of uh, you know governing cities. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That he was. I think at the end they said he was the only person ever to be the head of the National League of Cities and the Mayor's Conference at the same time, and was basically understood to be the national expert on cities and urbanism and. It's funny. So I mean, going back to what we started talking about before, was it 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 was a bit of a mirage, right? right. I mean, if you believe what, and and then that kind of gets at the marketing. There is some stuff in here that's interesting about the marketing teams that were set up in New York, I th- or I mean, in Detroit, I think, to help market the um, the Mustang. Yeah. What, but there's a whole part about that. Yeah. I'm not crazy, I don't think, but. Um, but it's interesting. And that same marketing team, by the way, is who helped try and sell the Olympics. Right. It's and the so same they, people. Which, and they, which is basically marketing a city. Yeah. And so they, it was like such this overwhelming boosterism that was existing at a kind of high influencer sort of level. But the the real people, of, uh, and I'm using air quotes, <coughs> the real people in Detroit were either leaving or losing their jobs and finding themselves in a condition of poverty that was growing. And um, discrimination, and dis- and yeah. and terrible discrimination. That's right. Yeah, they were, it was like the auto industry being the dominant force here in Detroit. Both helped create Detroit and helped create the growth that existed there. And then at the same time was like simultaneously sowing the seeds of its own destruction on two fronts. One, it was actually creating black mobility, so that all of a sudden, you know, the sort of the people, the the people who come from the south into into, into Detroit in the north as part of the Great Migration, we're now having actual economic mobility and independence. And we're saying, we're basically in a position finally to fight back against, you know, the overt discrimination. Right. So like, it's true. So like the auto industry was, was helping that happen in a way that all of a sudden the white majority was having to finally deal with and listen to because it was an empowered black community and or at least a, some portion of it was. And then to the earlier point, we were to, to Pete's earlier point, which I will say again, which the, we were helping cars move out. Help cars were helping people leave the city. Yeah. So they and they were creating. Not only were they creating the cars that allowed it to happen, they were actively driving a cultural focus on like glamorizing cars and wanting to have to drive. Driving. Yep. And driving being something that's a qu- part of being an American and freedom so and hitting the open road. Right. And so they were. You know, it was like it was like working. At the industry was working at cross purposes with itself. Right. <laughs> you know, in, but but nobody had any ability to see that at the time. Right. It w- and and it would have almost been impossible to see. I mean, right. Yeah. Right. And then on top of that, I mean, I think that I've always been educated uh, that, or, or that sort of what happened in part with the U.S. economy in this time period was that we were so fat and happy because we're doing so well that particularly in the auto industry and, in, and when labor management relations, when they were trying to deal with strikes, they basically said, "We're going to." We're going, you know, w- like to have peace, have labor peace. We're going to split the pot, and we're going to, you know, we're going to have all the. We're going to sort of work out a deal. We both are doing great, and then when the, when the, um, when the market actually finally started to shrink, and the Japanese came in and started to sell more cars, and the Koreans, and all of a sudden, like we weren't, s- we weren't just dominating the world car economy. They had already made these deals together that couldn't be sustained in that mm-hmm. future world. But they were in this moment of euphoria where like, we're gonna conquer, we're gonna continue to conquer forever. And that's similar to what how the auto industry was viewing everything. And how Detroit itself as a city was viewing everything. It was like, this will never end. Yeah. And it did. It did famously. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about the auto industry. 
and let's sh shift a little bit, but one of the one of the characters that I would want to read a book on was Walter Ruther. Absolutely. Um, who was the head of the United Auto Workers. And if, you, if you've read anything about the labor movement he, in American history, he plays a outsized role nationally and at, at the local scale in Detroit. And he shows up in a couple of places in the book. He shows up as um, helping to organize a civil rights march in Detroit, helping to fund a um, the March on Washington, where, where Dr. King delivered the... I have a dream speech um, for the second time, That's which right. is an interesting part <laughs> yeah. of this book, and maybe we can come back to. But, yeah. um, but, but, uh, Mar Marinus gets into in depth kind of Ruther's philosophy on labor and work and what labor unions should do and uh, what role they play in um, the American and, economy, and cultural and society more broadly. Yeah, I mean, he was a real intellectual. Yes. Can huge. I just say though that people like him to my knowledge, do not exist in the labor movement and sort of the on the scene today. You don't see people who are as important locally as they are nationally to the larger labor conversation or larger government conversation. It just doesn't exist anymore. You're either a big national player or a local leader. Totally you, agree with He that. sort of was the, the, the person who held both sides of that, that coin. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, he had incredible, there's parts where he's, you know, meeting with Kennedy on a regular basis and, and, and Bobby Kennedy and John F. Kennedy are picking up the phone and calling him and saying, you know, what do you think of this? I mean, he was a real, I mean, I he had an incredible amount of influence. Um, and they were thinking about him when they were doing things mm -hmm. that were dom anything domestic policy related. It was talk to Walter about it. Uh, and I just found him to be a fascinating guy. I found kind of his philosophy on the world to be really interesting. Mm -hmm. There's a... Yep piece in here where he talks about the um, fu future of the, l the labor movement a little bit and what labor unions should be focused on. Um, I, I think I can find it real quick, but he, he basically gives this stump. He he it says he considered himself a visionary and he focused on his attention on the major issues that he thought would define labor in America for the rest of the century. And he gave a stump speech. He would go around giving stump speeches in Detroit and New York and talk about this. And he says, unions, he said, were on their way to becoming less economic organizations than socioeconomic forces working to improve the quality of life. They would be functioning in a rapidly transforming society in which there would be more technological change. To s adapt and survive, he thought that unions, employers, and the government had to work together to bring about four conditions, meaningful and creative employment, adequate educational facilities, equal rights regardless of race, and a full measure of economic security for the aging. I mean... Sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, uh, he, what a, that's, I mean, he, he, but that's not what, I mean, n not, not to cast any aspersions at the, the American labor movement right now, but I don't know that they're following Ruther's playbook today. And, or if they are, they didn't for a period of time that led to an undeniable decline in labor, labor union participation over the the last 50 years. The, the, the view of that, that, that vision is just so much broader, right? I mean, yeah. he's talking about, you know, social issues and, and labor issues and educational issues and societal issues, all is intertwined, which they absolutely are. And I don't know that many people talk that way. Anymore. No, I mean, it's I mean just it's, yeah. yeah, that's right. And, so, and, one, and one element of that is he was, he was dealing from a position of relative stability and, and strength, and strength in, the, in key, the labor yeah. movement that he could think bigger and broader. And obviously that hasn't been the case really since then. Yeah. Um, and it was more about survival and, and sort of keeping what you have. But 
I thought what was really compelling about him, in addition to just the, the sort of intellectual s scope with which he approached um, his work and his position and his, and his ability to influence was the risks he took for, for justice. I mean, he, it was not his members' interest to go advance the civil rights movement. Yeah. Like he yeah, pushed that because he, he believed it. He believed in it. Right. And he believed rightfully that it was ultimately better for the labor movement and ultimately more important for the labor movement and also, you know, society. But he went against absolutely went against his membership in doing that. It's clear. And 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 it was like a critical it seems to make it clear that he and I, this is a piece of history that I didn't appreciate that he was that the UAW but in particular him were he were were essential parts to a lot of the Civil rights movement, success. specifically on the financing side, yes, which I had no had concept not of. Been, had they not been doing that, that certain things would not have unfolded the way they did. The march, we talked. We, the, march, we, the march, bailing people out of jail, yeah, bailing people out of yeah, right. The bailing people out of jail. That's right. That yeah. was incredible. Yeah. I mean, like w w when it, um, it was the fr the freedom freedom riders, yeah. I think, yeah. who yeah. were down uh, in the south and got arrested. And, I mean, and the, the, the th I mean, the amount of money, even he's for the time wired money to go was, bail them out and sent people to go bail them out. I mean, he sent literally people on buses down to the south. With UAW money to bail him out. Yeah, he has this. I had this this line that I had circled that he. he I mean, just to the, just his intellectual scope of what he was talking about, and something that I think could be discussed today, easily. He says, or Meredith says, by 1963, bigness in the modern world had become one of Ruther's central themes: big business, big labor, big cities, big government, big life in every respect. How to accommodate that bigness and make it liberating instead of oppressive? Instead of oppressive was his obsession. He believed that the concentration of power, if used foolishly, could do grave harm, but if used wisely, it could be a force for good. The question was not power itself, but how it was harnessed. And then he goes through this thing of yeah, basically it, it saying, like, you can't, you can't stop this. It was what such a great line. Think about it. Because in, it, you know, the way we've talked about him here so far, if you're listening, you, you think that he was maybe an idealist, or, but yeah. that paragraph gets to the fact that he was also very pragmatic about mm -hmm. getting things done. Mm -hmm. in, in a way, it was kind of the Kennedy... Uh, the, um, the Kennedy-Johnson kind of way of doing things, which is figure out how to get power and use it to right. do what you wanted to do. And he kept his eye on that ball. And there are lots of people in politics today who have good visions for what they want to do, but are, you know, clueless when it comes how to harness power and then use it to get something mm -hmm. done. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely right. Yeah, and he, 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 just, he just, I mean, he just is such a compelling guy in this book. He is one of many people portrayed in this book that I would prefer to read an entire book about them. I mean, whether it's him or Edwards or Barry Gordy or any of these people, I mean, I, I just found the people so interesting, but the the intertwining of them to be tenuous at times. I would love to pick up a book on any of these people and, yeah. and take them on Motown. I would Give love me a book on Motown, frankly. Right? We haven't talked about Motown yet, but so throughout the book... Uh, um, you know, if you're listening, you've put together that he he uses different chapters to talk about different parts of Detroit during this period of time. So there's the Olympics, and there's the Mustang, and there's uh, Walter Ruther, and then there's the mayor and the boosterism, and um, and then movement. there's what what's that? Uh, just the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement, point. and then there's Motown, and in it it's like a um, Malcolm Gladwellian type story about mm. all of these people who um, are together in one city in close quarters in a period of time, and then they created the, the Motown m music industry, uh, or music label. And it's unbelievable to read about the people so who 
came out of Detroit in that particular time. I Stevie spent a lot of time on YouTube listening to Motown yeah. while I was reading this book. Right? A ton well, of first Stevie I would, Wonder. First, I would try to figure it out myself by, you know, he would write the lyrics and in a way that he would at least give you a chance to try to sing them and see if you could right. remember it. <laughs> right. And then... And oh, then that's an interesting image in my head of Luke singing Motown. <laughs> 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 but yeah, no, it was... I, I found that uh, to be so interesting the way that um, sort of the process they use for making music, how much it take, it, it was a little light into like the industry, how that was an industry and how that was like, how having a label meant that you had all this talent and then you had certain songwriters who would help people write, you know, who would right. that, give it to the right talent. And it, and it, I think, I don't think, or at least I don't think today that is really only in, only in hip hop. I mean, not to get all. too off topic, but you know, you have, uh, Jay-Z has a label and he, passes through talent, you know, on his label and various other rappers do, but it doesn't exist anywhere else. And, most, that. Yeah. and, and not to this level of sophistication. Yeah. And in a way that's, in a way, I think the big difference is that it was done in some, that, that there, it was an operation as opposed to, there's certainly artists who have writers who write stuff for them and things like that, but having a couple writers who write for 20 different artists and the guy, you know, the, the sort of, the, the guy at the very top, Barry Gordy, like finding people, bringing them in, having, like, that they were basically operating 22 hours a day. And he was worried about what was good for Motown, the la the brand, right. not necessarily who sang what song and who was in what part of the lineup. You know, he had to manage those personalities, but really, at the end of the day, it was Motown at the top. What do we do to advance Motown? So smart. What, I mean, what a businessman. Yeah. What right. a guy who was able to right. And, and how he got this thing off the, off the ground was a loan from his family members who had to vote as to whether or not to yeah, lend that him was the money. That story. It was fascinating. Great part yeah. of the story. Absolutely. Um, the Barry Gordy stuff was terrific. Uh, Stevie Wonder as a young... It uh, really made me, dis it really made me like, in a way that I never had been sad about Marvin Gaye because I, you know, I, it, it, his, his death and demise happened maybe right after I was born, but it was never something that I had a chance to think about uh -huh. or wonder about. He was just a person from the past who made a couple of great records, but now it's like this guy was really something yeah. special, and what a tragedy. And I didn't realize his dad had killed him. I didn't really even know the whole story. Yeah. But yeah, so the music, the music was throughout this. I feel like, you know, he could have upped the value of the book if he added a soundtrack to it, or mm -hmm. there should be a, maybe, a maybe there's a Spotify playlist or something like that. That's actually a good technological question about, you know, like reading them on Kindles or things like that. There should be a way to listen to Well, so, uh, yeah, like so everyone, I've got, a a I've got a Kindle and a hard copy book in front of me. I've noticed that. It's impressive. Because I finished, the, it expired on the library from my Kindle. I had to go get the hard copy. Ah. Uh, multimedia. Today. Yeah, I'm for the, I'm for the soundtrack. Um, yeah. we're, we have a, a future podcast coming up of a book called City on Fire. Putting a marker down, Chris <laughs> nodding. Um, and uh, by the way, if you're listening and you've read the book and you want to join the podcast recording, we're, we're looking for for people to, to talk about it with. We've us. gotten through all thousand. We've gotten pages. through all thousand pages <laughs> of it, but it's about New York in the '70s. Um, and there is definitely a soundtrack that goes with it that the author released and did a uh, oh really? a playlist fantastic. for on Spotify. So they he got an article in Rolling Stone really about it, and then you can listen to songs that are now and of the moment that, that kind of follow along with the book, which, which would idea. have worked very well for this particular book. But about the music, um, there's another part of the book that we haven't talked about was he talks at one point early on before the, he gets too far into Motown about a company called, I think, Grinnell that made p pianos that was located in Detroit. And... Uh, it turned out that a lot of, I think it was called Grinnell, right? Um, yeah, that's, that's right. right. A lot of families had 
uh, and, uh, and frankly, a lot of African-American families had pianos in their living rooms in Detroit, and it was a bit of a thing. And people would go down to Grinnell and get their their music, and they would get their instruments. And that, that he, I think, is arguing helped contribute to the success of Motown, mm-hmm. is that you had all of these folks who, at the time, you know, were living a middle-class life, and yeah. they could pay attention to music. Much of which was tied back to the auto industry. Yeah. Having having the excess, you know, the, the income to be a middle-class family, to afford a piano. That's I mean, right. what a luxury to afford a piano. That's a exactly right. Working an assembly line. He, d- he did tie that in really nicely. Um, another piece of it that I, I thought was, you know, just terrific was the part about the Civil Rights March that took place in Detroit. Um, and I think we've probably among us here read about civil rights marches in the past. I know you guys are history readers. I don't think I've ever read an account that was quite as descriptive of what it was like to be in an actual march as this particular Mm, Yeah, it was really interesting. Um, Talking about being just how many people there were, how you couldn't see where you were, and you didn't know how far back it went. People would fall down and, you know, have to, like, cut back into the particular Mm -hmm. part of the line. Um, the the auditorium being so full that people were outside <coughs> in by, by blocks, yeah. wait, just li- trying to listen to what was being said inside. Yeah, it was fascinating. I mean, we're of a generation where we have heard politicians our entire life patting themselves on the back for marching with Dr. King. Right. And you read this and you get a sense of what that was like. Mm-hmm. And you get a sense that they were, it's not like there were five of them marching down mm-hmm. the street. Right. And right. You get a sense <laughs> of like how many people were able to actually march with Dr. King. I, I just thought it was an yeah, example that of what a good writer he is. Yes, he is a tremendous writer. And that, that section on the story of how that march came to be is so interesting in, in, the, in the sort of break or, or preview in the future because it has, it has, I forget the name of the guy, but who is eventually, who, had, who was, a, um, was a member of the clergy at the time, but was radical was radical at the time, and he's well, he's the one who did not want any white people to be involved in the march at all. Clegg, I think, was his name. Right. Yeah. Yes. It was spelled differently. Yeah, Reverend Clegg. Clay. Yeah. And then, um, and then later left, and I and, and I think formed his own religion, basically. Uh, but that you had, you had this brief moment there where you had where everybody was willing to come together, and it was it was still sort of an idealistic thing, but it but simmering below the surface was the was the deep level of frustration and anger from you know people who've been held down for centuries, and then and then like sort of the naivete of these white saviors who were there to sort of bring it all, bring everyone freedom, yeah. and then so there was like those things were for a moment they would cross and they'd be able to be okay, they would sort of align together, but it was always tenuous and it was always it was never going to be able to stick together. And King was such a pivotal figure to hold it all together, right? He was a centripetal force that like held all these people together by force of personality. And that it, you could even see in that march that how, how he filled that role, and you could see how what a devastating thing it would be once he was assassinated. That he, you know, that so much of what he was holding together and driving forward by force of his own personality, by necessity, fell apart and went in different directions. Right. Yeah. You get it, this. Um, I, I was glad that Dr. King was such a presence in the book too. Um, you and I talked before we recorded about the two speeches um, a big part of the book is is dr king giving a basically a first draft of the mm-hmm. I, I have a dream speech in detroit in a, uh, at this march and then doing it again in the march for washington and 
um, the author goes line by line, showing how it got different, how it changed. Yeah, it's wonderful. It was a fascinating couple pages where he separated the two out. Really excellent piece of history yeah. right there. I don't, and I, I've n maybe someone else has done that before, but I, don't, I had never seen that or heard about right. it. Um, and the idea that <laughs> the idea that that Barry Gordy was printing records of yeah. the speech, <laughs> and there ended up this amazing <laughs> lawsuit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then he couldn't. And think about that that that, that, that: that there would be these hard-bitten negotiations with King's representatives about about Motown records selling his right, like his iconic speech, and 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 that and that. You know, behind that, which is this wonderful moment of social justice, is this very direct business negotiation. It's a side of Martin Luther King you almost never got a window, that I've ever gotten a window into, at least in terms of the, the business side. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and you can say, well, yeah, he should, he should be getting some money for this. If, it's, if someone's going to make money off of this speech, he should be getting right, money off of this speech, yeah. not just a, whoever decides to record it. But that was a fascinating little story. Yeah. I think that's, in, and that's kind of, you know, as we're winding down a little bit, that's, that's what I took out of this book, is that there, it was a, a really rich collection of stories about Detroit, mm -hmm. but you're right, there was not, I don't think that there was this one line that drew it all together, or it, if, if there was, it takes listening to maybe a podcast like this to begin to tease it out. Yeah. My, my sense coming into this was that I didn't really enjoy this book that much, that I don't know that I would have finished it had I not had the end goal of sitting here talking about it today. Right. But I, I walk away from this thing, eh, yeah, actually, I did enjoy that part that maybe I didn't fully appreciate yeah. as I was reading it because you yeah. know, it really does take someone to hold your hand and put those things right. together. In well, a way it's interesting because there is no... It's not a driving narrative that compels you to finish it because you're like waiting to find out what happens. Right. That's right. Right. Um, you know, but I would... I, I, you know, I mentioned that I, I have a theory. I have my own theory of what ties it all together. And I think I just finished literally today the, the last 20 or 30 pages. And I felt that having the Johnson give his speech at the end, his commencement speech at the University of Michigan, in which he first announced the Great Society, to me, with my own lens of the history that, that unfolded, um, that was a perfect capper to it because First of all, Johnson's election that year was like that apex of he won this you know, unbelievable blowout election over Goldwater. His vision of New Frontier, Kennedy, plus Great Society was ascendant. The idea that, that, that the United States was ascendant, the idea that we were going to continue to grow and achieve and nothing was going to stop us was probably, even though, it was, even though you can look back and see all the signs of what, were, what was going to happen, at the moment it seemed like that was a sort of an exorable uh, path. I think his Great Society speech which was this, I, I, the Great Society was sort of the um, catch-all term for the problem Johnson had of guns and butter and that he was trying to do everything, yeah. and that he was trying, there was not enough money to do everything he wanted to do at the end of the day, but he tried to do it anyway. And I think that was that, that failure that, that Johnson, that Johnson's vision of the Great Society envisioned a, an economy that could, would continue to grow forever and didn't envision all the money we were going to have to spend in Vietnam was similar to Detroit's vision of something that would just continue to grow and continue to grow and grow and, and, and didn't know that, see, that you were doing things at the same time to cut into that. You were like chopping out your legs at the same time you were trying to grow. And so I think, I think Johnson's great society vision introduced at the end of the book was to the largest ever crowd to hear a commencement at the University of Michigan was like sort of a national corollary to the Detroit story that I thought, knowing how it all unfolded, fit well yeah. 
in, in the story. And I, 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 do, I did get a little bit of sense like his winking back to the, uh, that, st- that report from the beginning of the book right. uh, at the very, very end was him sort of nodding to, okay, this, is, this was a great time, but it all ended and here's, you know, here's why. But I'm going to talk about why it was good for those two years, right. what was great about it sort of buy back into the euphoria, just like that commercial I felt, just like the, the euphoria I felt when watching that Eminem commercial. Do you think people believe n- that there, there, are, there are some art, you know, we read a lot about it, people who visit there. I mean, I know there's a group of Cincinnati city leaders who recently went up to Detroit to tour around. Do you think some of that euphoria is back about American cities right now? And there are a lot of people who believe that Detroit is on the upswing again. Um, it, it's 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 uh, the examples they use are are small and pockets of growth, kind of like in Cincinnati when we talk about how over the Rhine is doing really well and it means our city's back, but it ignores the fact that there are a lot of neighborhoods mm-hmm. that are still beset by p- or by poverty and. I think th- I think I don't think it's a euphoria, but I think it's a hope of cities on the on the ascendancy again. I mean, I think and uh, you even talk about over the Rhine. Um, over the Rhine has changed in so many ways, but it's still a handful of blocks and over the Rhine that it, I mean, there's still so much in cities that can still change and that can still happen. And I think generally there, are, and maybe it's because I operate in a world of people who do believe in cities, but there is this, this hope that we can do more to revive and watch cities grow again. But I don't think there's a euphoria yet. I, I think that's on the horizon, but yeah. I, I, I would agree with that. I think it's more of a, rather than a, how do we manage our decline and stop it? Exactly. It's, it's how it's we we have the opportunity here to grow. There's excitement. How do we harness it? How do we achieve it? It's and an a belief that we can achieve it. It's an exciting time to be in cities, though. I I think you're right. I think you're right. There's a um, there's a, a review of this book plus a bunch of other books about cities in the in a recent issue of the New Yorker with an article by um, Adam Gopnik, and it he says something that it's I'm going to read this paragraph, but it's very similar to what you said, and I think it. It's, it's done quite well. He says, cities change, it is their nature. Those which stop changing stop being cities. Cities that change entirely, though, cease to be themselves. If there are sane grounds for hope, they lie in how resilient the social capital accumulated in cities turns out to be. Detroit today is, all agree who work there, a harsh place haunted by the past, but one with real civic resources that are being called on for its renewal. The clashes between local people and new arrivals in inner-city Detroit as elsewhere are real and a fit subject for a novel or a film or a real oral history, but they are not poisonous or intractable. Uh, and I think, that, I think that's kind of a, a great way to sum up yeah. what, what is going on in cities right yeah, now. Um, and it, the, article, the article's terrific. I would encourage you to uh, check it out because it's a, a good review of this book and a good review of some other books about cities right now. Um, there's plenty of other reading out there about Detroit right now. Uh, a recent issue of The Atlantic has an article by ta Coates about the black family in the age of mass incarceration. He talks quite about, about Detroit. Um, I would highly recommend Mark Benelli's Detroit City is the Place to Be, which is a contemporary reporting on what's going on in Detroit um, within the last couple of years. Um, and then there's some other fiction books out there. I mean, this is you know kind of back to where we started. There's a moment right now for Detroit, um, and I think that 
maybe if Cincinnati had Motown or maybe if we had <laughs> the I car what, industry, maybe I, there would be similar weren't type you, I was thinking about King Records I was thinking about King lot Records a when lot I was reading during that. this. And, now, and the fact that Motown is a the Motown, the original Motown building on West Grand Boulevard has a, which is like a house, has a museum a, yeah. now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is precisely why King Records should be, not to be in a policy advocacy mode here, <laughs> but it's precisely why King corner. Records building should be a, Museum. It should be a preserved space because these things. There was a Motown record in Cincinnati. You know. Yeah, that's what, right. It was. It was real. Well, and I and I I love Cincinnati. Everyone here loves Cincinnati. But I would read this book about Cincinnati because I actually think it would be, in many ways, similarly interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, we did we did not see the great decline. We did not have the great auto industry. But we had some characters in our history. We had King Records of the world that could be make for a good story of I Cincinnati. Think po- I think Potter Stewart was a mayor in the 60s who later became a Supreme Court justice. Yeah. yeah. Who our courthouse is named after. Uh, there's pl- there's there's pl- maybe maybe ha- maybe put it like this. I think there is room for more writing about cities period. More books about the history of cities. I think we talked here about the the reason it's so difficult to write basically a biography of a city, mm-hmm. but there should be more of it, and that more authors should attempt to tell the story of the communities in which they live. And it I want more history of New York, more history of you know. Seriously, I mean, give me a history of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and it might be an interesting story. There are there's plenty that has happened. I mean, it really is the. Hi- I mean, it, it you can tell the history of the country in a meaningful way through the history of the cities. Yep. Yes, because I th- there was. I think Johnson, at the end of his book, Johnson's like, or in his speech, Johnson's like, in the next 50 years, yeah. there's gonna be, people are going to move into cities, cities are going to get bigger. Uh, he, he's essentially predicting things that were correct about how things would unfold. And there is this natural, you know, even if, even if people, even if there was, a, there was this huge migration into cities and then into suburbs, it still was functionally around the city. Right. Here's that quote: "Men come together in cities in order to live, but they remain together in order to live the good life." Oh, that's I mean, that's great. a story of cities, mm-hmm. yeah. period, at full stop. I mean, I, that tells the story of the city right there. All right, well, living the good life. Living the good mm-hmm. life. Let's all. It's Friday. We're recording this at Friday. It is almost 5 p.m. I sh- by the way, we're going to go live the good life. I hope after this, yep. but I will point out, just on this final note about Detroit. We're recording this the day after one of the worst football losses I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> the poor Detroit lo- Lions. There was some. There was some talk night. about the Lions in this there book. Was actually, some talk about the Lions in this book. They are Alex Karras. They are yeah. still terrible, and we can attest to that <laughs> as th- in the last 24 hours. <laughs> one of the worst losses I've ever seen. And if you're listening to this, you probably know what we're talking about. So, uh, th- uh, thanks for listening t- today to the Twelfth Story. We encourage you to subscribe via your preferred podcast app. We're available on the iTunes Store and on SoundCloud. Click subscribe, that really helps us. If you like listening, tell your friends or tweet to us at Mercantile L-I-B. Today's podcast was directed and engineered by, as always, Chris Messick. Special thanks to our guests, Luke Blocher and Pete Metz. Uh, The Twelfth Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Don't forget to visit us online at www.mercantillibrary.com where you can learn about our library and our many upcoming events. Have a great week, everybody.